Craig and Mark Kilberger were cast into the spotlight during what became known as the We Charity scandal. And so I think a lot of people saw a side of them that involved them testifying and sort of defending their work. And I, I think a lot of people who saw that, but also people in the charitable sector, they find them hard to understand because they have approached charity in many respects with the zeal of people who run a business. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me from New York, we have Tofik Rangwala chatting about his recent book, What We Lost, Inside the Attack on Canada's Largest Children's Charity. Thank you, David. We appreciate the time. Yeah, Tofik, you have a personal relationship with the guys that started this internationally known charity, We, and you went to school with Mark. This is going to get heavy pretty quickly, so why don't we start on a lighter note? What was a, a good laugh that you and Mark shared growing up together that you can recall? <laughs> we shared we shared a lot of laughs. Um, we went to high school together. I, I think um, you know the particular laugh for me that I actually recount in the book is really just I think representative of Mark and his brothers' you know attitude about the world and how hard charging they were. And I, I tell the story of how uh, in the book we were working on a school project. And this was when we were 14 and we'd been working at it all day and I thought we were done. And I demanded that we stop and that we simply move on and we get pizza. And Mark, uh, Mark looked at me like I was totally crazy. And he started laughing and saying, you know, what do you mean? We're done. We're just getting started. This is like just our first draft. And, you know, now we really got to get to serious work. And I was like, Mark, that's enough. We're going for pizza. And I remember he looked at me without missing a beat and he said, you know, you go ahead if you want. For me, good enough is not good enough. It's not quite that funny, but it was really hysterical to me at the time because I thought, wow, this guy is so over the top in terms of how committed he is to this, you know, grade nine school project. I just laughed over the years because I've learned how representative it is of Mark and his brother's approach to everything, including running a charity, which was it had to be, you know, world class and it had to deliver outsized results and nothing short of you know perfect was was going to satisfy and i think it's emblematic of what they built and it's also somewhat it's emblematic of why i think some people find them hard to understand and why a lot of the we charity scandal really unfolded the way it did interesting let's just dive into the the humble beginnings of this organization it was his younger brother craig that was really the brainchild at what point do you recall being struck that this was more than just a, an idea that a kid had in his classroom and could actually be a, a world-renowned organization? You know, I, I'm still wonderstruck by it all, to be honest. I'm not sure that there's a particular moment in time. I think that, you know, I saw Free the Children grow from, you know, a child labor movement in someone's, you know, backyard and, and garage into a real force for change. And I think part of it was, you know, they really tapped into something in young people and showed young people that they could do more than be passive bystanders to what grownups were doing, you know, in terms of making a difference in the world. And I moved to New York to begin my law career back in 2002, and I sort of watched them only from afar. But it was amazing to me how the vision that they had, how quickly people gravitated to it, and how quickly, I think, you know, young people, educators, and and eventually, you know, corporations and you know, business people too, all sensed that there was something very special in the way that they were approaching problems like youth activism or how to get youth more involved, challenges like, uh, you know, how to, how to deploy sustainable development in the right way. Uh, it was amazing the whole time. But I think the moment it first struck me, David, was 
when I was asked to join the board. Because I think that was the first time when I agreed and I started going to board meetings that I just realized the true breadth and scope of what they were doing and just how the scale on which it was being achieved was kind of, it took me even by surprise, even after I joined the board. Mm, Phenomenal. That was the largest youth-driven charity in the world. And you you mentioned that if you didn't know these guys, they'd be hard to understand and that may be contributing to what's transpired over these past couple of years with this scandal taking such a front and center stage in our country. What would you want to share about what's hard to understand about these guys that could be helpful for my audience? Sure. I, I think, you know, one of the things is uh, Craig and Mark Kilberger were cast into the spotlight during what became known as the We Charity scandal. And so I think a lot of people saw a side of them that involved them testifying and sort of defending their work. And I, I think a lot of people who saw that, but also people in the charitable sector, they find them hard to understand because they have approached charity in many respects with the zeal of people who run a business. You know, they I, they ran their charity kind of like a Silicon Valley startup. And so in the book, I sort of liken them to Steve Jobs. When you're sort of a visionary like Jobs, you know, people are going to applaud you for the way you're making a difference in changing the world. But at the same time, you know, they like Jobs are very hard charging. And I like to say they only run and they had limited, you know, tolerance for those who only want to walk. And as a result, you know, you're making a big difference and people applaud you for it. But at the same time, you're going to have some people who are tired by your approach, some people who are, you know, overworked or frustrated. And you're going to have other people who find it hard to understand what you're, how you're achieving what you're achieving. And I talk in the book about something called tall poppy syndrome which is, you know, this phenomenon that I, I didn't really understand very well, to be honest, until I, I wrote this book. But a lot of people I interviewed, whether that was, you know, former Prime Minister Kim Campbell or all sorts of people in the charitable sector, they, they would all say to me, oh, this is tall poppy syndrome. And what that is, is, you know, this tendency to want to cut down uh, people who stand out from the crowd in some way or to suggest reason that they're successful might be because there's something shady going on. And I, I do think, you know, that that was... A big part of it is I think a lot of people in Canada found it hard to understand how these two guys had built this charity into this, you know, world renowned institution and how they were courting so many impressive and interesting people and, you know, gathering, you know, millions of kids in stadiums and and how were they doing it all? And I think there was always a little bit of a tendency and people say, well, maybe there's something, you know, not not on the up and up. So that's what makes them hard to understand. And I think the other big feature is they're not like you and me. Uh, you know, I, I don't know you that well, David, but I, I suspect they're not like you and me, which is these are guys who work 18 hours a day and always did on a charity. And they never, ever stop. They travel 300 days a year. And I just think it's very unique for the charitable sector. So when people see people like behave like that and all they do is talk about We Charity and talk about their work and their mission, they don't have very many vices. It sort of creates a little bit of distance for some people where they seem a little bit different. And I think people prey on difference. That's a sad reality of our world is when people don't understand something, it's easy to label it as, you know, somewhat shady or problematic because you don't get it. Yeah, it was really uh, helpful, I think, when you laid out the costs that both of these brothers had to pay in order to get this charity where it is today, um, speeding through a top notch academic institution to be able to go back and and help uh, his brother in the case of, of Mark and then. Mark allowing Craig to go, just really, really impressive stuff. And so that I think helps 
you know, helps us understand that there, it would have been hard for us to press that these guys are greedy, right? The, the whole organization from the beginning, there's no greed about them. They have the, the stature and the brains that they could have been making, you know, millions of dollars somewhere else. Why do you think greed specifically has kind of come into this scandal so heavily? When I think about your question, I, it, it's interesting. I, I think it was very important to a lot of politicians and people in the media to, in thinking about how to manufacture a scandal and tar the Trudeau government with it, to sort of make Lee Charity and the Kilbergers seem like bad actors. And, you know, the, otherwise, if you've got some ethics violation or some issue with the way uh, a contract was procured by the government, but the money was given to, you know, Mother Teresa, there's sort of a sense, well, there's not much of a scandal there if everybody uniformly believes someone's doing good work. It's only a scandal if you can really question Trudeau's judgment and who the money was given to. And that's why they had to really come after the Kilbergers. And I think one of the things that people decided to focus on was, oh, well, these guys must be greedy in that they must be using their charity in some ways to further their own business interests or financial interests or what we lawyers like to call self-dealing in some way. And a lot of people will talk about, oh, well, there's real estate transactions or there's a business that runs alongside the charity, a social enterprise called Midui. That must mean that somehow, you know, the Kilbergers or others are getting rich off the back of this charity. And what I talk about in the book is how if you really think about it, David, to the points you made earlier, it's it's really ridiculous because the Kilbergers are people who if they, if nothing else, have shown that they know how to court impressive people and they know how to raise money and they have extraordinary backgrounds. And so it's, as you said, they could have made millions of dollars in the private sector, you know, if they wanted to. And I think no one can really doubt that. And yet the idea that they somehow instead decided to work 18 hours a day for 25 years building a charity as a means to somehow be greedy or funnel money back to themselves uh, is really laughable. And it became even more laughable when you realize that the Kilberger family was actually donating millions and millions of dollars to the charity. So rather than profiting from any of it, they were actually some of the biggest contributors to the charity. So all of it is, is you know, if it wasn't so tragic, uh, you could call it a joke. But somehow it's stuck. And I think there's this perception that somehow there is greed or self-profit involved. And I, I just, I've done a really serious investigation. So many forensic auditors. And I, I think the bottom line is there's just no evidence for that. Now they get dragged into this largely because of the government's request for them to take part in this summer student grant. Uh, a lot of good ideals going on here, but on both the part of the liberal government and the Kielbergers. But as you point out in your book, the timeline is tight and there's all these variables that get thrown in last minute that perhaps in hindsight, as you suggest in the book, maybe from the beginning, it wouldn't have been a good idea to to really dialogue. Look, it, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, looking back on it, I think, you know, Craig Kilberger told me in an interview and I, I put this in the book. You know, I, sometimes I wish I never picked up the phone when the government called, um, because I don't think at any moment in time when we were originally thinking about doing this, did they realize that it could be the undoing of a lifetime's work. And the relationship that Trudeau and Morneau have particularly with the Kielbergers, you say at one point in the book that you find it mind-boggling that in addition to failing to rescue themselves, both these men did not ask, uh, did not care, or did not perceive how a sole source contract might appear to the public. 
Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it, it sort of goes back to the whole point, David, about who is responsible for conflicts of interest and who's responsible for how the government behaves. And my point in the book is it was never we charity's job to figure out whether Morneau or Trudeau or anyone else in the government was sourcing the Canada Student Service Grant in the right way or had recused themselves from the decision in cabinet to award administration of that program to we charity. And, you know, looking back on it, 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 it does sort of, you know, it does boggle the mind a little bit that neither Trudeau nor Morneau or nor people who worked for them, perhaps more importantly, you know, paused and said, well, maybe we need to recuse ourselves from this decision or maybe because because we've, you know, been associated with this charity in some way or maybe we need to make sure that this is not a sole source contract and make sure that we obtain formal bids from other organizations before we conclude that we're giving it to we charity. And I, I just sort of that looking back and realizing that they never did those things is really remarkable to me. Now, I point out that the independent ethics commissioner has largely concluded that Trudeau and Morneau did nothing wrong and effectively exonerated them here. But um, I, I still think from my perspective, they it's surprising that them and their staff didn't see this coming. And it it's really not surprising to me that We Charity didn't have any appreciation of that because I think folks at We Charity assumed that people had recused themselves or that there were multiple organizations bidding for this contract. It's not like We Charity knew exactly what was going on behind the scenes in government. Yeah, and you mentioned about the Independent Ethics Commission and finding Trudeau really scot-free on this, but then Morneau, while they recognize his good intentions, there was that conflict of interest which largely caused his what would be removal from the government. Yeah, it's just really baffling. Well, it, it is, but, you know, again, I, there, look, and I, I'm not, I, I am certainly not, um, you know, very political about my work here, and in fact, I try not to be. Um, so I, I don't, I don't want to lay blame at the doorstep of Morneau or anyone else. But I, I would say, from my perspective, um, you know, would I have recused myself? Yeah, I probably would have. You know, what, what the ethics commissioner found is that there was an appearance of a conflict of interest and he should have observed that and taken steps accordingly. But I think from what's lost in that to many people is that the ethics commissioner also found that Morneau never tipped the scales in favor of We Charity. That, you know, putting aside the appearance of a conflict, you know, there's no evidence at all that Morneau or Trudeau or, or anyone else in prime minister's office in any way put their thumb on the scale. As the story circulates further, you chronicle about how it gets on the radar of a television anchor in, in Las Vegas, Reed Cowan. And I just wanted to press you on something you said, the removal of Cowan's plaque, and this is a plaque overseas that was dedicated to his son for funds that they gave for this place to get up and running in Africa. And then there was a bit of a miscommunication that it, the plaque was removed. And you say it's important, however, to put the mistake in context. Any charity or business that has operated for 25 years is bound to have some dissatisfied customers or donors. I think that's entirely true. Uh, but as someone that works uh, for a charity myself, I, I do find it interesting that I wonder if there's like less less grace for a charity because you're almost you're held to even a higher bar. Sure. Uh, well, well, but David, I, I felt the same way. Look, I was heartbroken for Reed Cowan. And I, I, I was shocked when 
you know, he, he came out and said that a plaque had been moved. So I'm, I'm extremely sympathetic to that. I, I'm sympathetic today. I'm sympathetic when I was on the board. Yeah, it, it's absolutely horrible. And, and it's really unfortunate. Why I say you have to put it in context is this. I, I do think charity should be held to a very high standard. I think business should be held to a very high standard. But, but the question is, is something an honest mistake or is it part of some systemic problem? And all I'm saying is, you know, if you think about, you know, I don't know, you're, you're Apple and you're buying an iPhone, right? I mean, you're going to have some percentage of iPhones that don't work or don't have a problem. And it's Apple's job to fix that. I think similarly, if you're a charity, you know, running for 25 years with 50,000 donors, it, it's possible that along the way, some mistake occurs. And I hear what you have is a mistake in which 15 years earlier, there was a plaque on a school and the entire village got reconstructed and schools got moved around and built. And for whatever reason, it's still unknown, I think, to this day, you know, a plaque was moved. Now, there were plenty of schools that had no plaques on them. So it's not like there was like a lack of places to put a plaque. The answer is just it's moved. And I understand fully why Reed Cowan was upset about that. So did Reed Charity. And I think he deserved a profuse apology. He deserved to have it made right in any way he wanted. And I think the charity was, you know, all about that. And, and my whole point is, you know, that I think in those circumstances, what you have to do is if you've made a mistake, you have to make it right and you have to own it. And for me, that was really important as a board member that we charity did that. Where I think things went off the rails is you don't really expect to see that kind of mistake somehow then translate into appearing before a parliamentary ethics commission on politics and where, where he starts dropping accusations that are unfounded that suggest that maybe this is part of some broad systemic problem. And then, of course, you get Charlie Angus and Pierre Polivier and others jumping on it like it's mana from heaven and saying, you know, this is this is obviously a deeply uh, you know systemic problem. You get journalists who are reporting on the story. And then I think the most shocking part that people read in the book, and I'm sure you have, is Reed Cowan then turns around and tries to extort the charity for $20 million. He tries to bankrupt the children's charity, even though he had raised like $70,000. And the idea that he did that and threatened the charity and said, look, I will, I will shut up and I will go silent if, you know, you pay me off. But if you don't, I'm going to bring you to the heights of public infamy, I, I think is a really shocking development. But what's most shocking, I think Canadians should be like really shocked, is that none of their newspapers covered that. That the newspaper simply skipped that part, that the CBC actually put Reed Cowan's face in their documentaries, but didn't tell anyone that he's an extortionist. And I just that that was really troubling to me. My audience is really interested in having a quest for the truth. And lots of people have also been dissatisfied for maybe a different end of the spectrum several months ago with the convoy and, and some of the media not reporting that perhaps entirely accurately as well. What do you think's happening with, with our with our public media when it comes to covering stories like the week charity scandal? Yeah, so you know, David, that, that's an important quest I was on in the book is to figure out why this really happened and what's going on with the media. And I, I, as best I can tell, it, it, it's this: I think that there's a real hunger for clicks. There's a real hunger to stay relevant. There's a real hunger for sensational headlines. And I think a lot of mainstream media is increasingly taking their cues from social media where you have fringe players on social media who are promoting a narrative. And rather than doing the work of unpacking that and critically assessing that and saying, is it true or false? The mainstream media is just reporting on it and amplifying it. And I, I think that's a lot of what happened with the media in Canada is my sense. 
in your opinion, after going through this investigation so thoroughly, if there was one gaffe on the part of the We Charity that has hurt them the most over these past couple of years, what was it? So I think the gaffe that really uh, hurt them the most was with respect to payments to Margaret Trudeau, because I, I think, you know, it was um, in some ways in any other circumstance, I think it would have been an innocent mistake. But I think here it got magnified and amplified in a really bad way. And I, and I think the, the story there is really this. Uh, the charity was asked the question, you know, has Margaret Trudeau, the mother of the prime minister, ever been paid for speaking at, you know, for, for speaking? And then the answer that was given was very much truthful as intended. Um, it was, no, she's never been paid by the charity. And no, she's never been paid for speaking at We Days because We Charity doesn't pay people to speak on the We Day stage. What We Charity should have said, in my view at the time, but this is hindsight, was, but in addition to your specific question, me to we, the social enterprise business, has paid Margaret Trudeau and does pay Margaret Trudeau to appear at fundraising events that run alongside some of these we days. And, you know, here's what we paid her. And and I think that some people basically, you know, are too folk. We're too focused at the time on being technical and correct and, and, and deciding what the charity did versus it's, you know, partner uh, in the business enterprise. And they didn't say that. And then the second thing that happened that was a real, real problem was later it was discovered that there was a clerical error and that for a small number of those expenses, the charity had paid. And that, again, these are the kinds of things that happen in a big organization. And I, I don't think that they're terribly meaningful or nefarious. But when you have a scandal going on in which people are accusing the liberal government of cronyism and we charity makes a mistake about whether it's paid the prime minister's mother, you can fully understand how people are going to decide, aha, you know, somehow there's like some there's something up here. And the charity is trying to cover up how much it's paid or the Trudeaus don't want to realize, know how much their mother is paid. I, I, I don't think any of that. There's no evidence in my mind that any of that is the reason this mistake happened. But I think it was a gaffe that ultimately put We Charity in a bad light and, and put We Charity on the back foot in responding to a lot of criticism. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Tufik. In closing, where do you see the future being for these Kielberger brothers? I'm not on the board anymore. I'm not, I'm not working for them. And that was very important to me because I, I really want to be, I really wanted to be objective and thoughtful and very open-minded in how I approach this book. And that's really important to me. So I, I don't, I don't speak for them and I, I don't know, but my, my impression is they're trying very hard along with those who are still at We Charity, uh, or doing work within the U.S. with We Charity, um, to find a pathway to make a difference. And so I think in the U.S., a lot of the programming is continued and you know, is being made available virtually to Canadians as well. You know, my hope for them is that they find a way to move past this and, you know, keep on giving and contributing and, and you know, helping others make change happen. But how they're going to do that, I mean, it's probably going to have to look a little different. And I think, you know, my understanding is they're they're exploring every way possible that they can they can contribute. OK, appreciate this. Very thorough. Tofik Ranguala, check out his book, What We Lost. More insight on the We Charity scandal. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the talk. And if you want to double back on any of the details related to the We Charity scandal, you can find them over at the show notes page at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. And I'm going to be giving away Tofik's book, so make sure you comment on the social media post for that, either on Facebook or Instagram 
to get in on these sweepstakes. As we have just heard an alternative side to this We Charity scandal, I think it's important that we as Christians continue in this quest for truth. We are to be open-handed and even-handed, looking for imperial evidence. Jesus called us to be innocent as doves and yet shrewd as serpents. Let's keep that mentality and how we process what happens in this world in light of whose we are. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Today, there is only one major newspaper with a strong coverage of faith journalism, and that's the Winnipeg Free Press. What you may not know is that it actually has gotten stronger in recent years. Led by journalist John Longhurst, the Religion in the News Project may be a model replicated in other places in Canada. We'll explore that and find out where John's quest for the faith element in stories first came from. After her report ran, her news editor said to her, Waymeyer, how come when I send you out to get a story, you always keep coming back with God? Peggy Waymeyer replied to him, how come you keep missing him? Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.